Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the B Podcast. Today, I have Noah with me. Um, Noah Healy. All right. Um, thanks, Noah. Uh, we chat before. Thank you for coming up to the show. I know that you're busy, a busy camper. Thanks for having me. No, I will do uh, a different intro. Usually, I, I do an intro, mention the name, what the people did, etc. But for you, I think what caught my attention is today when I'm going through your feeds and your profile on LinkedIn, I like to introduce you by what you just said on About Me. You said, here I quote, I say, it is not lost on me that I have an enormous responsibility to produce algorith algorithmic technology product that drive result, but also protect ethics and morality. One does not need to look beyond recent financial crisis or their Facebook feeds to see that our rush for more powerful technology has eroded our civic, political, cultural, and societal systems. I view myself as an algorithmist with a conscious and use tools such as game theory to design product ethically. I would say just congratulations for this because it's just so much nicely put that I paused looking at it and just thinking is like how many of the guys around us who specialize in technology, who would look at it this way? Um, unfortunately, it is rather rare. And um, I got here through sort of a, a road of unlearning reliance on on things that most people take for granted, um, uh, which is something I think getting into computational mathematics is really good for because it's, it's very different from other kinds of mathematics. It's mostly about um, non-constructive impossibility proofs. Uh, so when people think about math, they usually think about like what they hit in grade school or maybe geometry where you prove how to do something. And then when you go out into the world and you encounter the need to do that something, you know how to do it, you do it, you get what you're looking for. Um, but general computation, while it has some of those and some very powerful ones, um, also has uh, these other kinds of proofs, which are just sort of like the, the perfect obverse of that, where um, you discover that certain categories of things actually can't be done. Um, and, and sometimes it's even coming up with examples of what can't happen that, that can't be done. Uh, and in a, in a world that's been driven out of this rationalist, constructionist mindset uh, and built some really incredible and amazing things, um, we now have this technology that, that undermines some of those foundational assumptions uh, and, and gets us into this new place where we we are damaging ourselves in ways that's very hard for us to even think about. No, no, I just I all the time wonder a lot. Of, as as recently, at least I think the last five years or so, people start talking about what's wrong with the world. Is is it that the the system is broken, or is the technology is bad? What's your thought on that? I'm just curious. Um. I wouldn't say so much that the system is broken as that it doesn't actually exist anymore, um, any more than uh, in the move from sort of medieval feudal Europe to industrial modern Europe. Um, it wasn't that the monarchical systems that had existed were broken. It's that 
the the technology and and social systems that allowed monarchy to function as a social order uh, didn't actually exist anymore because cannons crushed castles and uh, cavalry couldn't charge into mass firearms. So knights living in castles couldn't couldn't dominate landscapes. So what's a monarchy for? Um, and and we needed very different political and economic systems uh, in order to actually use the technology that that was was developed engines and you know gunpowder and, and all the rest um, in the same way uh, modern systems are built around assumptions about the nature of information and communication which are simply false uh, and we trust these institutions um, for what they used to for what used to be capable of being delivered um, and if you trust somebody that's lying to you then things aren't going to go well uh, and we're in a position where we can't make these systems tell the truth anymore uh, because the thing that used to make them work doesn't actually exist uh, and and so we have no option but being lied to by economic systems, uh, which is, you know, about as bad as it's possible to be from an economic standpoint. There's this, um, when we had a chat, um, I think a few weeks ago, this idea is about, you know, the financial system is being broken, being rigged off, um, used for the benefit of the few. And, and that, that sort of revolutions um, brought in, you know, decentralized finances along with digital currency and more of them even now. And we know what's happened in the last few um, days and maybe 10 days or so when it's all crashed, coming down, burning all of people's savings who invested in it. What's your thoughts about, um, you know, all of the digital currencies? Does it, is, is it the solutions actually? Is, is it the way to go for and, and, and will help us fix what was being broken or stolen? In currencies, I can't be that positive about. Um, it's possible that a digital form of currency would be superior to, you know, some kind of foldable cash or uh, a credit record system or, or some other kind of currency. But something that isn't well regarded or understood is that currency is a political animal. Um, it is it is part of the, the social fabric of a society. Um, because of the incredible rise of global trade in the last century, uh, we tend to knit societies together. And even, you know, the EU, the concept was that, you know, they'd create a currency and society would come afterwards. But historically, that really doesn't happen. Um, historically, societies generate internal currencies for their own purposes. Um, and there can be many purposes for which a society can generate a currency. Now, what the sound currency people, uh, who include both the modern digital and also gold bugs, uh, are correct about is that societies that choose a hard and rare currency um, are more economically successful than societies with similar resource and technology levels that don't choose to do that. Um, and societies that choose to 
just arbitrarily debauch their currency, uh, become very poor, regardless of their technology and resource level. Um, so it's less a case, I would say, of digital currencies being the future as being assured that we don't have uh, a currency system that'd be uh, part of the future. I've said uh, on a couple of podcasts now, digital currencies aren't really solving the right problem. Um, they're, they're looking at a situation where societies have generated this sort of central bank political duopoly of, of crony capitalism and saying, well, we can use technology to fix that problem by having this distributed ledger that nobody can, can mess with. And we get the convenience of, you know, fed wire and, and banking and stuff um, combined with the, the solidity of say gold coins that, that have all been assayed. Uh, what they're missing is that the social component, um, they don't have a cultural, political, military unit that is using that currency. Um, and they don't actually have a mechanism for acquiring such a thing either. Um, so it's, it's starting to happen that countries are looking at this and saying, well, you know, we could get on board and adopt, uh, you know, fork the technology or, or adopt one of these as, as a, as a thing, but in that case, the the ledger isn't going to be more powerful than the political authorities that are that are operating the currency. And so, the things that the that the the you know sort of true believers truly believe um, aren't really there. Uh, and establishing um, a reliable measuring device, which is what currency is for. Currency is the unit of measurement of economic activity. Um, so agreeing on exactly what a centimeter is, is, is pretty important if you're going to, you know, be measuring things for, for stuff. But if the information being transmitted is all false, it, it doesn't matter what the units are. Um, if you're, if you're trying to like build a model of something and you're getting bad data on like what the dimensions are from, from somebody on a cell phone, uh, and you're like, oh, well, their ruler's screwed up. Let me, you know, spend a billion dollars getting a ruler that's absolutely exactly, you know, centimeter by centimeter according to the the, 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 the official meter. Um, and the problem is that the person's lying to you. Then, then it doesn't, you know, it, it it's nice to have a more accurate ruler. Um, but the problem is that the person's lying to you. The problem isn't that, you know, they, they can't measure properly. Is is this, is this is what happened with the UST basically when they promised that they all of their you know tether are pegged to US dollar and then obviously they're not because they continue minting as much as when their currencies that being associated with it that being you know broken down is is that this is this is what's happened last lastly yeah well sure yes but but. Yeah, way worse than that, and not quite as recent. But the LIBOR, um, which is that's that's essentially the global currency, the London Interbank Offered Rate, was established by some guys calling up their essentially old frat buddies to ask them what their numbers looked like, uh, and then you know plugging them into a pocket calculator, averaging them together, and, and telling everybody once a week or month or whatever it was, um, and then you know the emails emerged that they were just lying about it for personal gain and profit. Um, and why wouldn't they? 
the system had no no regulatory like oversight imaginable um and uh and so of course if you had the opportunity to lie about the state of the entire global economy um you would be able and have everyone on earth believe you and act in accordance to whatever you said you would be able to exploit that for personal profit it's it's actually I would say pretty embarrassing for the participants that they've done so poorly out of it. Um, they should be way richer than, than they got. Um, I also think it's uh, really disgusting that there wasn't nearly as many criminal charges uh, attached to it uh, in the end. But, uh, but yeah, um, lying, deception, just error uh, are, are all a far larger problem than our systems generally cope with because communication is still within society, largely considered essentially in these kinds of terms, face-to-face. -face. Now we aren't literally face-to-face here -face. on, you know, a third of the way around the planet uh, from where I am, but it's still, we're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation. There's social cues involved. You can sort of see what my face looks like and build up trust and so on. Um, but, you know, we live in a world of, Twitter feeds and, and social media and, and machines generating content for other machines to parse to generate content. And so deception and falsehood has a much greater reach than it did in days when people would live in villages and mostly just be interacting with the same hundred or thousand, you know, or so people for the majority of their lives. In which case, if, you know, if Frank can't be trusted, well, he won't be. And he isn't going to have a great life. And that's probably a good thing because look at how bad it is that we're trusting all of these people who are, you know, out and out liars these days. So Noah, what do you take on just you mentioning that, that technology allowed that falsehood to propagate in, in a speed of light, basically. So what's your take on, I'm curious on socialist core card. Thinking it through privacy. Um, I don't think modern privacy invasion is necessarily more invasive than human beings can tolerate because again, village life, which most of the human beings that have lived in the historical period lived in those sorts of scenarios. And, you know, proverbially everybody knows everybody's business in the village. Um, I think the, where the creepy factor really goes off the, off the deep end and where the thing that's missing from the modern world is reciprocity. Um, it wasn't the case that everybody knew everybody's business left out the grocer, the squire, the priest, everybody knew their business too. Um, and uh, when we talk about social scorecard, we don't talk about say Mark Zuckerberg getting a social scorecard. And if, the general consensus of his behavior is that he's a creepy asshole, then he doesn't own Facebook anymore or, you know, have access to food because he's a creepy asshole and nobody really wants to be around him. And therefore, unless he's, you know, gardening all of his own food on land, he can't own because he doesn't own anything. He can't have any food. Um, I've never seen that conversation occur anywhere where I wasn't having it. Um, and I have no idea how we could actually scale a reciprocity-based, privacy-free environment to 7.8 billion people. Um, that doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, but 
a social scorecard that does not absolutely include all the leading members of your society and by doing so instantaneously destroy any possible existence for them in society uh, is nothing more than a sort of direct ripoff of George Orwell by creepy assholes who should probably be ejected from your society as quickly as possible. You know, when, when I say, you know, these things have disintegrated, it's, it's bad. I'm not kidding. Like it, the, the math is very clear. Um, there's definitely no way to form a positive argument for these things. Um, and, and it's, it's, it gets really, you know, I'm having a, a personal thing right now with the U S patent office where my patent has been accepted twice now. And each time the acceptance has been withdrawn by the quality control department um, because of the desire not to be able to have undue influence um, as a applicant, I can't know who it is in the quality control department is doing this, nor can I communicate with this person. Um, but the people who are inside the patent office who can do that um, tell me that what they're, what the person who's doing this is saying doesn't make any sense to them. So, you know, like I'm playing telephone with somebody who, as far as the people who I'm actually allowed to talk to say that they're just spouting gibberish and they're nonetheless in a position of privileged power, that means that they have final determination over what, what I'm doing. So, uh, I'm, I'm not out of cards yet, but that's a, that's a bizarre situation to get into. Um, and you know, you would, you would expect, um, from like American civic government 101, that if the government was sort of anonymously saying nonsense, then that would be sort of trivially dismissible. Uh, but of course, that's not even remotely how things actually are. Uh, and so instead I have to deal with this whatever um, that, that makes very, very little sense. You've created or you founded actually um, a business called Cordisk, right? And developed something called CDM, which stands for Coordinated Discovery Markets. Can you tell me a bit about that? Because it's quite fascinating looking at the presentation deck that they've got on your page. Uh, yeah. So CDM is a different way to do price discovery. Um, and you can use that to create markets similar to the kinds of markets that we have today. Um, but less noisy and therefore less costly. Uh, and the foundation on a concept of sort of wisdom of crowds uh, with supply and demand. So commodities are produced by large numbers of competitive producers and are used by large numbers of competitive consumers in general. Uh, and that competition on each side keeps the margins relatively low for both, both sides of those plays. And with low margins, you can't absorb very much risk. So what current markets do is they allow people with deep pockets to step into the middle of these transactions and essentially buy low and sell high, um, more or less for free, because they're absorbing the risk of each side. But at the same time, um, that risk is essentially just a pairing risk. As we've seen with things like the global financial crisis or the very recent, uh, you know, supply chain defaults, the deep pocketed people can't actually guarantee trade if trade isn't actually going to happen. Um, 
So nobody can sell you Ukrainian wheat that just got burned because it doesn't exist. So nobody can sell it to you. Um, the, the market is instead dealing with a pairing risk and pairing risk could also be handled uh, from a batching. If you get more and more people on both sides of a trade, then, then the, the, the failure of pairing risk goes down. And there's a market system called a dark pool that works like that. The problem is dark pools don't have a price discovery mechanism. They're forced to use some external marketplace. Um, and in fact, marketplaces have become so risky, large players have turned to dark pools, which then removes the large players from the markets, which makes the markets more risky, which makes dark pools more useful, you know, used, uh, which increases market risk. Uh, and then, you know, we've seen markets shut down or seize up under, under these circumstances. So what this does is it takes the dark pool style uh, clearance systems, which are a lot safer than marketplaces, and pairs it with a forecasting market, uh, which allows sort of a paramutual consensus uh, to pre-negotiate what prices the dark pool trades, what I call sort of a, a bright pool trade, because it's got an integrated uh, uh, price discovery mechanism, um, so that the trades can just happen in a sort of more secure and cheaper form. So assuming that tomorrow this is the new model and, you know, we're going to press the button and this goes live, what the, the, the impact in a global economy would look like? Um, it would be fairly extreme and fairly quickly. Uh, like I said, these are low margin businesses. Um, so like oil companies, which are sort of bywords for being incredibly large, incredibly profitable things, uh, which they are, operate on eight to 12% margins. Um, American farmers who are some of the richest on earth, um, operate in sort of the 10 to 20% margin range. So, um, market costs vary from market to market, but, um, uh, the American government reports that the average market cost, uh, for sort of the big commodity markets is 16% of the transacted value, um, for, Mature markets, it's probably a little smaller. Uh, but if you have a 10% mar operating margin and the market's chewing up 5% of the, the costs, then there's essentially 15% potential margin available if the market were free. So having the price of that market would mean that your, your actual profits would increase 25%. Um, Somewhere between, say, 20 and 100% uh, profit increase across the productive sectors of economies uh, would be the expected outcome. Uh, and that would greatly shift uh, uh, the human economy towards greater production as producing things would become much, much more profitable than it, it ever has been in really all of human history. Uh, and we would, uh, there's a Another concept in economics called the production possibility frontier, um, which is leaving aside sort of trade-offs, you can sort of pick what your, your limits are. You can't go beyond the production possibility frontier. So like, you know, the, the sort of classic is guns and butter. There's, there's a, there's an outlier of, of how much of each of these things that you can have and sort of a bulge of, of how you can trade off. Um, social policies and other things can sort of pick a point on, on that frontier, but they can't get past it. This would actually move that frontier out significantly. Um, and since the revenues generated thereby 
would go into businesses that needed to expand production, um, which would then have that same lower marginal cost for expansion. Um, we should see a secular economic gain uh, across most countries on earth um, that would be similar in size to, uh, you know, like post-war Germany or Japan uh, in a, in a year over year. So it's, it's pretty, it's pretty intense. Um, the existing market costs are on the order of uh, global economic gain. So uh, that would mean from a net present value standpoint, effectively doubling human wealth. So Noah from the sound of it is really great. But is, is there any precondition or pre-requirement of deploying such solutions or new type of market? What's the enablers, I would say? You have to find markets that are amenable. You need commodity markets uh, with people who would actually play the game. Um, you need uh, several dozen initial players. Uh, and that's, that's the hard part, basically, is uh, moving... Um, a large enough subset of an existing market from their existing system to try out something brand new. Uh, and so that's what I'm sort of scouring the world for now. Uh, and I've got a few irons and fires here and there that are, are warming up, but, uh, but just finding uh, those opportunities for people to establish uh, uh, new or competitive markets uh, with, with the existing ones. Um, maybe I would like to circle back a bit on the impact on the global economy. So we know nowadays that, you know, inflation rate is highly driven or most of it driven by many factors, but one of them is commodity prices are, are quite increasing in particular energy. And and that's, you know, pushing maybe, although behind, behind the curve, the, the Fed and other central banks to start tighten their monetary policy. So deploying a such solutions, how that look like from, from that perspective, inflations, monetary policy, and whether the central bank would be having an impact on, and how they see the, the economy playing from that perspective. Well, again, to go back to what I was saying about currency, currency is basically a unit of measurement for, uh, measuring economic activity. Um, I would, I would say that the reason we talk about inflation sort of being driven by commodity pricing is that um, the people who are actually driving inflation um, benefit from inflation while it isn't driving commodity pricing. Um, so if I can just print free money and buy things, then I can buy anything I want. Um, but if that free money starts raising general price levels, then, you know, Sri Lanka happens and, and maybe I can't have any of the things that I want anymore because my house is on fire. Um, so if inflation is sort of sequestered to the art market, uh, high flying stocks, um, land in nice places, then it's cool because then powerful people can use, use free money to acquire more of the kinds of things that they want. Um, you know, super yachts cost five, five times as much as they used to. I don't care. I own a money printer. I buy myself a new super yacht. Now they're six times as much as they used to cost. Who cares? Doesn't matter. Um, 
once that money gets out of that box and spreads to the broader economy, then sort of the, the, the play money game goes away and whether or not you're going to keep having like roads and, and, you know, food and shops and stuff becomes more of an issue. Uh, what the fed would have to do to credibly claim that they were going to end the free money spigot is completely outside of, of, you know, any conceivable conversation. Uh, in the eighties, I was alive then I wasn't very old, but I can remember, you know, television ads and what prices things used to be. Uh, the fed, you know, pushed interest rates up into the double digits and, and up near like high teens, 20%, something like that. Um, and that didn't work. Like prices are a lot higher today than they were back then. That that broke the back of massive inflation, but it just broke it down to low inflation, which is already fairly fairly incredible over the you know thirty year forty year timeframes. Um, so the Fed would have to rise raise interest rates you know higher than that. Um, there's there's a lot of debt in the system. Uh, and so if, uh, if, you know, bank accounts were earning 25% interest and, and, you know, mortgages were locked in at 4%, uh, the entire structure of, of how money would function would, would change precipitously. Um, uh, and, and who knows if 25% would even be close to enough to, to really actually firm up the American currency. Uh, one of the things that we have, um, as Americans is, you know, the Euro dollar, the, the fact that global settlement happens in American dollars. And so an enormous amount of the inflation that we've created over the last 70, 80 years where that's been the case, uh, has, has been kind of spread out across the entire world. Um, maybe that's breaking down now. Maybe it isn't. Um, we should expect it to break down someday. Uh, and, and if it did, um, there would be sort of a mass torrent of, of those dollars being repatriated. Um, and there's, there's some really bad things you could do about that as well. Uh, but I, I can't imagine that the people that we have in charge of things, having the stomach for doing any of those bad things. Um, and that, that leads to, to serious inflationary uh, crises as well. What, a market system that's functioning properly can do about these issues is it can appropriately predict and announce what will be happening so that people can plan accordingly. Um, and CDM actually does have since, since the, since it's not predicting sort of point prices like modern systems do, but rather price curves over time, uh, in much greater detail than modern systems do. Um, a CDM would give us sort of our best navigational chances through those rapids. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a pretty major problem. And, uh, the exploitation of that is the major driver for all existing successes. Uh, people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, who have achieved, you know, wealth beyond measure, uh, or Bill Gates, same thing, uh, did so in an environment where inflationary forces were vastly driving the value of companies in ways that we can't actually know or measure. 
So some fraction of their wealth is, is essentially based on this lie. How much? It could be anything. It, it could be more than 100%. It could be trivial. Um, there's literally the only way to find out um, is, is for, you know, some kind of failover system collapse, have them kind of, you know, left on their own and sort of see what's left over as a result of that. Uh, we'll see. Maybe, maybe somebody who's up for that will wind up in charge of making that decision. Uh, maybe it won't happen. I don't think that will happen. As, as it's all, all the time has and has been an all the time one way street. You talked about early on. It's just it's if it's two way street and then become fair the game. Yes. Well, again, European history, um, uh, both more recently and, and remotely, offers us examples of what happens if the street stays in one direction for too long. Um, you know, the Ceausescus, the Romanovs, and the Bourbons all had really good runs, um, but not not good finishes. Um, I wouldn't say that that we're we're looking at that as a short term solution for for any of our presently successful people. Um, but once you, once you sort of walk through the doorway of understanding that uh, these systems are intrinsically deceptive, uh, things like, you know, Apple, Amazon, Tesla, you know, these are, these are the most valuable companies on earth or according to a system that mathematically can't be telling the truth about basically anything. Well, maybe they aren't the most valuable companies on earth then. Um, you know, the, 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 the London Metals Exchange, uh, you know, shut down, what was it, chromium, um, because the Chinese manufacturer of stainless steel, uh, which was like the world's largest supplier of stainless steel, uh, got caught in a short squeeze. Was that correct? I don't know. Nobody does. Maybe having, you know, one firm having such a dominant position in producing stainless steel is senseless because we're producing too much stainless steel as a species for what we want out of life. That seems really unlikely to me, um, but in the absence of information, it's it's remotely plausible. Uh, and yeah, and I, I don't know. Um, I would like to. It would be really good to know the answer to that question. It would help tremendously with the economies of the world if we actually knew whether it was a good or a bad thing um, for, you know, Apple or Amazon or Tesla or Microsoft or, you know, uh, Chinese steel manufacturers to be in business. Uh, but we don't. But is it, um, Nua, is it all about that social acceptance and behavioral is like kind of similar situations when you walk by the street and you see your restaurant that all of the table are being seated and there's a lot of people on them, you will be more motivated to try to get a table on that restaurant than the one next door that seems empty? Uh, well, yeah. Um, and again, that's, that's the kind of thinking where our personal experiences don't scale to our global systems. Um, because for example, have you heard of open table? I, I doubt that you have it in, oh, you do? So open table, Oh, cool. Yeah. So they're basically killing the restaurant business and they're killing it exactly like that because people don't walk down the street and see restaurants. They walk down open table and see, see 
the restaurants that Open Table shows them. And so what what Open Table did um, is more or less like Uber's business plan before Uber. They moved in. They offered uh, convenience um, at at losses basically to dominate the market segment, uh, and then they went you know full mafioso and basically said, hey, that's a nice restaurant you got there. It'd be a shame if nobody ever went to it because we direct all traffic. We say what's popular and what's not popular. So, you know, you've got margins. What if you just gave them to us so that you can stay in business Uh, or not? You know, you can go out of business. Does it make any difference to us? Somebody else will open a a restaurant in that position. Somebody willing to pay us all of their money in order to stay in business. you know, you're not our slaves, it's voluntary, uh, but that's how it is. Um, in a world mediated by physical space, ownership of physical space, you know, without tyrannical levels of, of you know, police presence isn't really a practical thing. And so we got this sort of freebie save on, on that. But in a world dominated by communication space, no such freebie exists. And so popularity or dispopularity are producible simply through algorithmic fiddling on the back end. Um, no external feedback can allow somebody to break out of the cage. And suddenly you've um, effectively, you know, cartelized an entire city, uh, city service industry. That's a, that's a good business, you know, running a protection racket. It's illegal. <laughs> Hopefully you would live in a place that would punish it. You don't, neither do I, but you know, it's something we can hope for. Uh, one last question I've got, and actually just, um, it came to my mind right now because we talked about crypto digital um, and digital currencies. What's your take on uh, NFTs? Is, is this is a Ponzi scheme? Most of, the, most of them are Ponzi schemes. Yes. And in fact, this was confirmed. Um, uh, there was, a. Uh, there's a guy who's running a major crypto exchange who's a billionaire. I'm terrible with names. I can't remember his name, but he was on uh, Bloomberg's podcast recently uh, where he was asked exactly the question of, you know, what, what's the deal about crypto? And his, his response was not in these precise words, but his, he was like, it's a Ponzi scheme. Like I build a box, people put money in the box. Therefore the box is worth money. Who am I to say that people putting money in a box isn't worth money. Therefore hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, Okay. <laughs> uh, again, you would hope it would be illegal. Uh, the The technology of NFTs um, has has potential applications. Um, whether or not we would actually be able to exploit any of those potential applications, who knows? The and also whether or not that technology is actually cooked yet, I would have to say no. Existing blockchain technologies have actual technical issues um, with with things that we know about things like hash durability. Um, so developing a currency that somebody solves a hard math problem within a century and then the currency doesn't exist anymore. Maybe that's fine for everyone who's presently alive. It's not really the kind of thing that you should responsibly do to your civilization um, if you care about it at all in any way. Um, so uh, hyper exponential uh, cost functions for, for use, which uh, most of the uh, uh, proof of work algorithms 
fall towards uh, dependency on uh, or algorithmic dependency on particular, you know, cryptographic uh, one-way functions or hashing. Also a serious problem. Um, those sorts of technical issues, uh, uh, I would say, plague the space right now. It isn't inconceivable that solutions could be found uh, for for these things. Um, but, you know, computers were developed in the 1950s. The technology that we're speaking on does not strongly resemble the technology that they developed um, in really any way. Uh, Bitcoin is, you know, Mark One, uh, a a functioning NFT digital landscape, you know, ecosystem, isn't likely to resemble Bitcoin any more than my laptop uh, resembles like ENIAC. Nice, nicely put, nicely put. Noah, thanks a lot for your time. It was really a pleasure talking to you. Um, I'm conscious time we're approaching one hour, so. Thanks and um, yeah, uh, speak to you soon. Great.